Hey everyone, our greatest desire is that this podcast would make you more excited about studying the Bible. So we encourage all to come to their own conclusions based on a personal study of God's Word regarding the subjects being discussed. The views expressed by the guests on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our sponsors or who they represent. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review or share it with your friends. Now, here's the show. So I'm going along, I'm thinking about this, decide to uh, decide to follow through on my plan, um, which was, you know, basically just to find a way to to end my life. Oh, was this something that you decided on the day or was it something no, that you No, it was planning? about three days before. And so I go there and I start to execute my plan, which was to walk off this big pier. It was very convenient because there's a huge storm and I knew this storm was coming from the weather forecast and mm-hmm. whatnot. And I was going to just, you know, dive into the surf um, off of this, this big pier. Wow. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. Our guest on the show today is Pastor Don McIntosh. Now, I'm pretty sure that when Don's time here on earth is done, He'll be remembered as some sort of great mythological creature. Because to wear as many hats as he does, you have to have a lot of heads. He serves as a college campus church pastor, a chair of an entire college religion department, a teacher, a chaplain, the director of the health evangelism program. He sits on numerous boards in the fields of education, religion, health, and lifestyle medicine as well as being a husband and a father to four children. I mean, he's the stuff of legend. Don's unique personality, something a certain physician said masks his abnormally high IQ, has led him to become the chaplain of the Nedley Depression Recovery Program in Northern California. And so with that background and area of expertise, we both felt particularly called to unravel the story of the prophet Elijah. Elijah watched on as Israel sunk deeper and deeper into apostasy under the reign of Ahab and his soul became distressed, his indignation aroused. God used this young man's passion and desire for righteousness to call the entire nation to repentance and was soon to showcase his power in the most dramatic of ways. But there was one apparently great obstacle in his path. The God of Jezebel. So this is a very popular God. I mean, you go to worship Baal and you, you come away either pregnant or having impregnated people. And so uh, the Canaanite worship was very well attended. It was not like, you know, uh, why should we go to church today? I mean, people, people wanted to go. They wanted to be a part. And, but this was a disaster for, 
for the morality of Israel. They were known as, mm-hmm. you know, monotheistic, and so they had one God and they had one wife. Right. Uh, but, you know, you would go to the services, you would go through the services, and then you would end up, you know, with someone who was not your wife, you'd be having intimate relations with them. And like I said, church was very well attended, but it was demoralizing to God's people. Um, it, it, it demonstrated, however, how bankrupt and far away they were from God because they were getting involved. But here comes Elijah, mm-hmm. and he has only one two-letter word, no. This is not good. So he's defending the Hebrew God against Baal. Which is a testament to just how remarkably successful Jezebel has been then in her her attempts to bring the Israelites to a point of compromise. Well, I mean, she's evidently very successful. She's, she's, she's married the king and, 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 and kind of has the pulpit. Uh, one other thing about Baal, though, that we should notice, it's not just reproduction. Mm. It's uh, also crop propagation through weather. So this is like the storm god. This is like the rain god, kind of like the god, you know, we need right now here in Northern California that, and to bring rain. Right. And so uh, bringing children and, and bringing rain. And so this was... Very important, especially in, in, in that land. There was an mm-hmm. early rain. There was a latter rain. And uh, God said he was in charge of that, the Hebrew God. But no, Baal said, I'm in charge of it. And it can be triggered by these various actions that you take concerning reproduction and different things. You can actually turn the water on, turn the water off. So this is kind of the setting. So Baal is just the the Hebrew god in disguise then, right? He offers life through procreation and irrigation. He offers everything that Elijah's god offers. That's right. And but in a kind of a different way, an mm-hmm. immoral way, you know. So it's an immoral way of of getting the same results that uh, you know, we depend on God for in the Hebrew system. And that's kind of crazy yeah. that this this appeals to them. I mean, when you consider all that they have to actually do to worship Baal, to worship their God. It's not unlike today, kind of, you know. There's people that, there are many, you know, uh, ideas within the secular culture and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of a neo-paganism today where people are going back, we want to worship Thor, we want to worship all the ancient gods. So the showdown then comes on Carmel, you know, Mount Carmel kind of builds up to that. And it's an impressive showdown. Once you understand that Baal is the god of weather, the story kind of comes alive. Sure. The sun is beating down all day, you know, and they have all the prophets of Baal up there, mm-hmm. hundreds of them, and they're doing everything they can. Who knows exactly what they're doing, but the talk, text talks about how they, they cut themselves, they cry, and and then there's this back and forth, like, maybe your God is sleeping, you know. <laughs> and I love how bold Elijah is here. I mean, he's amongst all these pagan worshippers, and he's just mocking their God. <laughs> but it's it's quite gruesome. It's, it is. It's, it's a gory scene. Now, it's interesting, you know, in the culture we live in, there's a lot of people that get involved in cutting mm-hmm. and, and, and different things because they're depressed and they're down and out, and there's a right. certain... Uh, release in that, and mm-hmm. it's not something that we should at all promote. 
but I see it many, many times when we're working with depressed people. Mm-hmm. And it's actually uh, one of the hallmarks of, of depression where people are self-medicating through that. So although it kind of looks funny, it's really not because right. people are really, even today, maybe they're not attaching it with the worship of a, of a God, but they're really trying to find self-medication or relief in highly anxious and stressful situations. And then you've got, uh, like you said, Elijah is kind of, you know, is your God sleeping? Maybe he's, uh, maybe he's, uh, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a <laughs> he's break. He's on vacation. <laughs> maybe he's on vacation. So this showdown goes on, and of course, uh, they don't get any any response from Baal. So then it's it's uh, it's up to Elijah to you know take the stage, and I think it's very fitting. I don't know how he got all the water up there, but uh-huh. he there is a spring. I, I've been to the site actually. And there is a spring, it's, but it's down the hill away. And they, uh, so they bring all this water up. They put it all over the altar. Mm-hmm. And everybody can see this. If you go there to Mount Carmel today, you can still go there. Right. And it, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you can see no. for miles. Mm-hmm. You look any direction, you can see for miles. You can see, you can see the, the sea way off to one side. You can see all over the plain. Hmm. So it's the perfect location then for the battle between these two apparent deities. Yeah. So even if you weren't there, like on the top of the mountain, you could see from everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could see. It was just like, okay, it's a big stage, and they're like on the top of the stage. So you have this showdown. It's an impressive view. Everyone could see, and you know what happens, of course. Mm-hmm. Fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice that Elijah had placed there, devours all the water and everything. Mm. Everybody just goes crazy. The Lord, he is God. I mean, they're just going crazy. You know, they see this and everyone's caught up. Maybe even, maybe even the prophets of Baal, who knows? This has to be one of the most spectacular miracles ever recorded in the scriptures. Elijah has called fire down from heaven, and God has sent it upon his request. You'd think that this would be the very moment where Elijah stands strong for God, that this victory would be a great turning point, not only in the lives of the people, but in that of Elijah himself. Well, Ahab the king returns to his lair and converses with Jezebel about all that has gone down at Carmel. And she responds in a rage, declaring that she will have the prophet slain within a day. Elijah, yeah, the same Elijah that has just rained fireballs down from the heavens, flees for his very life. Departing the scene, he heads towards Judah. And not content with being out of Jezebel's reach, he leaves his servant and continues his escape. The prophet is fearful beyond belief. In exhaustion, he finds a juniper tree in the wilderness and just collapses beneath it. He looks up to the heavens, despondent and disconsolate, and asks that God would take his life. He's done. He's finished. He can go on no longer, he thinks. And he just 
wants it all to be over. He's tired out. Mm. He's had a long day. Yeah. And then he hears this. And he's like, whoa, this is not good. <laughs> so instead of looking to God, you know, he, he starts to look and listen to the negative thoughts and threats of the uh, of the queen. Mm-hmm. When, when this text is read to people who are depressed, mm. like I've read to hundreds of people that are depressed, mm-hmm. they go, I felt exactly that way. That's exactly wow. how I felt. So when they look at this text, they're like, wow, that's exactly how I they felt. They can relate. I, I, I've, I ran away from things. I had a traumatic experience sometime in the past. Maybe it was something they did wrong or something that I stood for the right. And then it went like this. And I had a terrible court case or I had a bad custody battle or I had uh, I was abused as a child and mm. I tried to stand up to it. And then I began to socially isolate. I went away from every everybody. I'm alone. And I feel I have these feelings of, of worthlessness. And I've asked God day after day. Why am I still alive? Why can't you take my life? So when they read the text, and I'm not saying the text says that he's depressed, but I'm saying when a depressed person reads this text, right. they they start to perk up. They go, wow, I, someone else has been through similar things. And it seems it seems to be a rather quick transition from having this great spiritual experience to suddenly, you know, maybe maybe a day or two later, He's now he's it's 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 as if his mind is completely changed now, whereas on Mount Carmel he's he's there to prove God, but here once once he knows that Jezebel's on his tail. It just seems almost like a different character, you know. He 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 he's looking to die. This right. is dras- This is a drastic difference. Right. I mean, from you know courageous and you know at the forefront to now isolating himself and mm-hmm. running away. And again, when I read this to people that have been depressed or in the middle of that, they sometimes can point to some experience where somehow this was a tipping point. Right. And and they can't explain it to you. They can't explain mm-hmm. <laughs> why this happened. They say it just happened. And they just know that they're there right now. Yeah. yeah. You've you've worked with with many people that have suffered with depression and anxiety disorders. Help us help us to understand what really is going on inside the mind of a person that's suffering from depression. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, they have um, categories they go through when they're diagnosing depression, but apathy, um, you know, just low motivation, Mm -hmm. feelings of worthlessness, um, you know, all the different things that we see here actually in the story, you see, you see them talking about, uh, they have many negative thoughts. You know, they say that a a typical person has 60, 70,000 thoughts a day. And, uh, they also say that 90% of them are repetitive, Mm. the same thoughts again and again. And, uh, they also say that about 80% of those are negative so this is why, unless we have a strategy to combat negative thoughts that are repetitive, we're gonna all of us have the tendency to succumb to um, you know negative thoughts about ourselves and the, mm-hmm. the future and whatnot, depressive thoughts. So we have to have a strategy, right? And depressive depressed people they kind of lose that and they get overwhelmed and they start to have all kinds of of uh, what we would call distorted thoughts and negative self talk. 
So you have that, then you have feelings of worthlessness. You have the idea that no one else can understand you. No one can help you. And this is Elijah. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, and he's going to say later, I'm the only one. Right. I'm all by myself. There's I'm all by myself. No one else understands. This is very typical. And then refusing to be comforted. This is another thing. Mm. Since you don't understand, then, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't help me. There are some that believe that a true Christian can never really be depressed. How, how would you meet those claims? That if, if you've fallen into depression, then it's because your relationship with God has failed or it isn't genuine or there's something that you've done wrong. Can like, true Christians be depressed? Yeah, well, you know, there's the way I answer that is you have to look at it as a multifactorial thing, depression. There mm. could be many different factors. Mm. Maybe there are physical things. Maybe there are emotional things. Maybe there are mental things. Like triggers. What I say to people is, look, a Christian can mess up in something they're doing physically, maybe not even being aware of it. Right. So let's not moralize. Mm. Let's not start out with making everybody feel guilty, like maybe I did something. Most of the people come and say, I'm not even sure there is a God because I feel so terrible and miserable. And if there was, how would he let me you know, go through this? Sure. This can happen to anybody. You don't have to be a Christian. Christians are not... Um, you know, just saved from depression because there's physical aspects and different right. things. Right. And also there's spiritual things. You can do things that make you feel as though God is not there, mm. you know, but that's usually a later discussion I have. I don't want to necessarily start out by saying, yeah, you know, it's, it's a spirit. I don't even know what it is. Sure. Yeah. There's talking. It seems, it seems to me that there's a lot of people that are far more interested in finding out why people are depressed than how to help them. And people think sometimes that's an easy answer. And then I tell them stories. You know, this guy came and his, let's call his name Joe. It wasn't his real name. And he comes and he's involved in pornography and gambling and his wife and he are on the rocks and they're going to get divorced because she figured out that he lost all their money and plus has been looking at pornography. Mm. And, you know, we're out on the trails. And I said, you know, what's, what's your life like? Well, I'm married. You have a kid? Yeah. I have one kid. He's 18 months old. I said, oh, really? Well, that must mean that your wife and yourself maybe are not able to, you know, be as close to each other intimately as you normally were. Mm -hmm. And he just looks at me and he starts to cry. He, he lays down on the trail. And he starts to cry. And I said, I'm sorry to have offended you. I didn't mean to. He goes, no, I'm not crying because you asked that question. I'm, I'm crying because you understand. Mm -hmm. And I feel guilty and I feel shame because I got into things I shouldn't have got into when I, when I uh, was not as close to my wife as I could have been. And, and then I did other things and now I'm going to lose my marriage. Hmm. Well, we called up his wife. I said, have her come out. We talked it through. She gave him uh, another chance. She forgave him. Their marriage came together. And you know, so this happened years ago, this, this incident. But just weeks ago, I ran into this guy and his wife and their kids. They have now more kids, you know? Mm. And he goes, he, he is happy to see me. He runs over and I said, what are you doing? He goes, you know, I have a group and I have 90 people every, every Sunday morning I call them and we all pray for each other that we remain faithful to our wives and to God. So look at that. He mm. thought he was worthless. He thought his marriage was over. He thought there was nothing to it. He thought he lost his wife. Now they're together. He has a ministry helping people at the very juncture 
where he fell and where he became depressed. Depression can often be like quicksand. The more you struggle to escape it, the deeper you go. That could have been Elijah's story. And that might seem like your story. God wasn't done with Elijah. And neither is he done with you. Join us after the break to hear just how God brought Elijah out of depression's cave and how those same principles can be a light to your path also. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. Did you know that over 40 million Americans suffer from anxiety disorders? Yet only 35% or so of them even receive treatment. The Nedley Depression and Anxiety Recovery Program, located in Weimar, California, is a 10-day intensive program offering the most comprehensive treatment for depression and anxiety available in the United States. You'll learn how to manage your stress, overcome addictions, deal with loss, trauma, and suffering, and how making a few lifestyle changes could give you a whole new lease on life. You can find out more and check when the next program starts at depressionthewayout.com. Elijah's had it rough. Yes, God used him in a powerful way numerous times, but the people have rejected his message. Their efforts to reform were but half-hearted, and to top it all off, he's been placed on the wanted list of one of the craziest women the world has ever seen. But God sees Elijah's hopelessness, his helplessness, and knows just how to bring life back to the prophet's weary bones. As he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water, or like you'd say, a pitcher of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and he did eat and drink. Hmm. He touched him. Hmm. There's, there's physical contact there. And when I think of depression, when I think of people that I know personally that have been depressed, there is this you know, massive degree of isolation and and people often empathize from a distance. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at this now, I'm saying, well, the angel of the Lord shows up on the scene and the first thing he does, and I don't know what this touch looks like, but using my imagination, you know, he puts his arm around Elijah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this bodily contact. When I've asked people who are de- depressed, you know, what's an angel, first of all? Mm. Well, it's a messenger. Well, who's it a messenger from? God. You know, they say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means if you take it seriously that God really cares about depressed people and he sends a messenger mm-hmm. to help them. Right. 
And then the second thing they noticed is exactly what you noticed, mm -hmm. which was touch. And I asked them, well, why is touch important? And they say, well, you know, I'm not really sure, but it just makes me feel better. Well, you know, what do we do when depression recovery? We give them several massages throughout the week, mm. you know, and what happens in a massage may not have been exactly what the angel did. He might have put his arm around him, like you said, but mm -hmm. what happens in a massage is that they've done studies. And did you know that your serotonin level goes up depending on how good the masseuse is, <laughs> you know? So it, sometimes it doesn't go up at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you have the masseuse of the massage therapy school of hard knocks, it might not go up, yeah. but if it's a good massage, your serotonin level goes up 30 to 40%. Wow. So you have a, a, a release of that happy chemical. Mm -hmm. And this is why people like massages. You're mm -hmm. saying, well, it's releasing these neurotransmitters that are depleted when you're depressed. So um, touch, is it important? Absolutely. And I think in there as well, there's an element of compassion. Yeah. You know, you can start out with all the scientific facts and all this and be kind of clinical and insensitive. But compassion is a huge element in mm -hmm. helping people recover from depression. Right. And this doesn't happen often enough, in my opinion, Don. Yeah. People will say, oh, I don't know how to act around them because they're depressed. Well, don't act. Don't just fairy dance around them. Be there for them. You don't have to understand, you know, you don't have have to relate in order to show kindness to people. I mean, that can really make the world of difference. And this is what, something we hear all the time in our program. We can't believe how nice you were when you picked us up from the airport. And we we're embarrassed when we heard what we were saying and how negative we were, but you were so kind. Hmm. Compassion can make a difference. But given that the angel brought Elijah some cake, so can food, apparently. Like I ask him, what kind of food does angel do angels cook? And they, you know, they kind of laugh. Angel food cake, right? But, <laughs> but it's the angel is cooking for them, and he's he's uh you know it's not it's not complicated things. It's like bread, mm. you know. It's not like a a mass of different types of food. It's very simple, right? And then what does he give them to drink? He gives them some water. Water, I mean, this, again, is something many times that they haven't been drinking or eating. So in the Depression Recovery Program, we spend a lot of time talking about nutrition and the brain and what kind of things to drink and not drink. Many times people are drinking depressing drinks. Mm. Um, you know, for instance, uh, alcohol. It will increase serotonin, but then it will drop. It leaves you hanging. What about caffeine? it actually decreases the blood flow in your frontal lobe by 40%. So you're thinking, oh, I need a pick-me-up to get me going. Well, that's decreasing blood flow in the frontal lobe, the 30 to 40%. And that's the cardinal sign of depression, mm. decreased blood flow in the frontal lobe. Wow. What you eat and what you drink is going to make you feel so much better, and we know that. Right. You know? And then you notice next, after he ate and drank, it says he, he did what? He, he slept. Now, depressed people have a hard time sleeping, many of them. They have insomnia. And sometimes it takes a while to adjust things so that they they can sleep. And here you can see it's happening. I mean, he's he's getting the right food, he's getting massaged, and then he takes a he goes to sleep, and finally he starts to come out of it. So off just after that takes place, then, um, the Lord begins to speak to Elijah. Elijah is 
is hiding himself in a cave and God comes to ask him, Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> God is asking a question and we believe God to be all-knowing. So why would God ask questions? This, this, this comes up a few times in the scriptures I've noted. God comes to Adam and Eve and says, you know, where are you? Or he goes in search for, hey, God, where are you going? Where have you come from? Um, why, why would God ask questions? I, you know, well, I think that it helps us focus and then think about things ourselves. It's not that he doesn't know. He knows we don't know. And he's an expert clinician. It's not only here. You see it in Luke 24 with the two depressed disciples on the road to Emmaus. Mm. And he goes, you know, what are you talking about? And then he, they say, this is what happened. He goes, well, what things? And he inductively leads them on like a master clinician. And so the Lord comes to him and that's where he has this question. It's like, okay, you're getting, you, you were just getting better. Hmm. I was helping you. You know, I'm doing the massage therapy. <laughs> I've got all the food. I've got all the drink. I've got all the stuff. The sunlight, and, the darkness. <laughs> and, and, and why are you here? Now you're running away and you're in a cave. Hmm. By the way, we never let people stay in their rooms. They got to get up. They got to come out. We don't let them socially isolate. Hmm. And we say the same thing at their doors. What are you doing here? <laughs> you should be down, you know, at the nutrition aspect. You should be doing this. So he asked this question. and. Uh, the question actually leads to something that's very important, and that is it's identifying a person's core beliefs. Mm. Now, this is, this is a very important principle whenever you're counseling with someone or someone's trying to help you. You know, right. Why are you doing this? What's, what's your really core belief? Uh -huh. And then he shares it. But it's taken him a while to really open up. He hasn't just come out and said this the moment God shows up. No. And, and this is, you've brought out a good point, Dean, because physically, we deal with people's physical needs first, mm -hmm. then they start sharing their emotions, and then their mental thoughts. Very simple, but powerful principles. But Elijah doesn't open up immediately. It takes a while. And so God tells Elijah to leave the cave that he's got something prepared for him. So Elijah stands there at the summit, waiting, when the sound of a great wind comes before him. He stands and watches, trembling, as the wind rips mountains apart and sends great rocks hurling through the sky. But the presence of God was not in the wind. No sooner does that wind stop when the ground beneath the prophet's feet begins to tremor violently. Large echoing cracks can be heard from the mountain tops right down to the valleys. It's a glorious display of power and scale. But God isn't in the earthquake. And in what harkens back to Elijah's greatest triumph, fire falls from heaven as though the world itself was a light. And yet God's store isn't there. And then, amidst the deafening silence, a small, soft, compassionate and loving voice comes to the prophet's ear. Elijah, what are you doing here? My child, don't give up. 
don't give up on me now. I still need you. I have plans for you. Elijah comes out of the cave and he has the same excuses. In verse 14, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've slain your prophets with the sword and, and I'm the only one left and they're seeking to kill me now too. And I love God's method here. It's, it's genius. He knows that Elijah feels lonely. He feels as though he's the only one standing for God, and that's got to be hard. But God doesn't just come and tell Elijah that there are thousands that have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. No, he comes to him in his depression, in his anxiety, in his suicidal thoughts, and he takes him through this program, if you will. And when Elijah is ready to go again, when he's up, when he's on his feet, when he's ready to go and do the will of the Lord, it's as if God then leans over and says to him, Elijah, you were never really alone. Cause I've never been alone. He says, yeah, you know, you're depressed. You've been depressed. You, I know your core beliefs. <laughs> I've asked you why you're here. But let me just tell you something. I've got very important things for you to do. You say you're worthless. I say you're not. You're worth all kinds of things. You say you shouldn't be involved in interactions that have significance. I say, no, you are. You should be involved in very important things. Selecting kings, putting prophets in places, winning battles. I mean, this is a guy who's alone. He's, he's, he's hundreds of miles where he's supposed to be from. He looks like he's rejected God. He looks like he's a wreck. <laughs> he has to have uh, things repeated to him. Right. He has to have people feed him. He has to have water brought to him. He has to have massage therapy. And he used to be a prophet. Yeah. And then he goes, yeah, you think you're down and out? Mm, no. You are valuable. I love you. I care for you, and you have worth, and you have significance. I remember, I just remember, like yesterday, I was talking to my grandfather, who's the same age, actually, as my dad is now. He was 87 years old, and I was in the backyard with him, and I told him, I said, you know, I could never do this. I could never do that. I could never be a minister. I should never preach. I should never open the Bible. Then anyway, I felt like I was being called, but I said, here's all the reasons I could never do that. Mm. Because when I was down and cutting myself with one, like one of the prophets of Baal, when I was doing all those things, you know, never could I serve the Lord like that. Mm. And he looked at me and he just said, don't you understand the gospel? Wow. Don't you understand that it's not about what you did or don't do, but it's about what he does and is doing. Mm. He says, you are called. Get into the ministry. He never saw me get into the ministry. He died. Oh. But his words were like the words that God said to Elijah. You're not worthless. You have value. 
you can accomplish things and, and you need to go forward. And that changed it. Everything changed. Well, I, you know, I was very gregarious young man and, and uh, always very inquisitive. And my father, who's kind of one of my heroes now, mm. was, <laughs> had a hard time with my personality. It was a little different than his. And so we didn't, we really didn't see eye to eye. And I never thought my dad didn't love me, but I thought there was something wrong. Then I became an atheist and I read all kinds of books. And anyway, that, that was fun for a while, but it didn't work when real life hit. And then when real life hit, and when you experience relational problems and other things and they hit you, you don't have any real resources. And so I came to a very dark place in my life where I actually, I decided to end my life. And I was thinking about this. And uh, so I'm driving along in my diesel rabbit, which uh, could depress anybody. Anyway, so I'm driving along in my car and I have this plan to, uh, to basically end my life because things are not really turning out. Now, um, now that I look at the stressful things I was going through back then, they were really nothing. Mm-hmm. I've had much more stress, but even things that are not stressful become stressful if you don't really have God in the picture. Right. Everything becomes overwhelming yeah. if you, you don't have anything to you know, go up mm-hmm. against it. So I'm going along, I'm thinking about this, decide to, uh, decide to follow through in my plan, um, which was, you know, basically just to find a way to, to end my life. Oh, was this something that you decided on the day or was it something that no, you No, it was about three days before. And so I go there and I start to execute my plan, which was to walk off this big pier it was very convenient because there's a huge storm and I knew this storm was coming from the weather forecast and mm-hmm. whatnot. And I was going to just, you know, dive into the surf um, off of this, this big pier. So I'm there, I get there and I'm, I'm walking out on the pier. And um, I look back at the shore and there was a phone booth there that kind of looked like a lighthouse. It just kind of lit up. Hmm. And the thought came to me, you know, you really should call your mother. Hadn't talked to my mother in some time. You should really call your mother. And uh, so I went back. I went back to talk to my mother. Called, collect. My mother answered the phone. Would have been different. Probably if my father answered the phone. But Hmm. my mother answered the phone. And I told her, I said hello. And then she immediately said, where are you? I've been so worried about you. And she started crying on the phone. And I said, what are you, what are you worried about? She goes, mm. I have had this impression for about three days that you're in danger. Someone's trying to kill you. And I've had this recurrent thought that someone's wow. trying to kill you. And I was like, well, who do you think is trying to kill me? I was very intrigued by this. Uh-huh. And she goes, I don't know. But all I know is I have had this overwhelming impression. And I want you to promise me something before you hang up. I said, what's that? And she goes, promise me that you're going to come home. I was like, well, I really hadn't planned to come home right now. And then I'm thinking to myself, this is not going well, because I was just going to have a conversation with my mother. But now she's saying, you know, she wants me to come home. To have her say those things Mm -hmm. was profoundly impactful. So I, I I still had the plan, but I was like, this is bad. I mean... I couldn't picture my mother suffering that much more mm-hmm. because now I didn't listen to her. Right. 
So I start walking back out on the pier again, and then I said, man, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that to my mother. I can't do that. So I uh, got on the road, and I started to drive home. And this was in North Carolina, where I was at the time. I drove home. It took me to Ohio. And, and a song from childhood comes to my mind. And this was it. Jesus loves me. This I know. And that's the first time I, I, I would say in that time period. There were other times I knew that. But that sure. time I said, man, God cares about depressed people. You know what? There is a God. He knows what I'm going through. And he intervened in my life. I know that. And I started crying in my car in Ohio. <laughs> and I had to pull over. I couldn't, I could not even drive. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I put it together. I realized God never abandoned me. I have value. I have worth. And I and I came to that point. And that changed it. Everything changed. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or hearken back to a previous episode, you can find us at whythedidthat.org. Please also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on your favorite social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at whythedidthat. This show was produced and edited by Christian Freed. Finally, we want to thank Weimar Institute, the media department, and especially Teresa Costello for help making this possible. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.